zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Honky Tonk Freeway, released August 21st, 1981. It was written by Edward Clinton, with uncredited story from Don Boyd, directed by John Schlesinger, and released by Universal Pictures. <laughs> somehow. British producer Don Boyd based his idea for the film on his brief childhood experiences in the U.S. as the son of an employee of a British-American tobacco company. He was only here for six months and claimed to remember little, if anything, of the visit, but was connected with actor and aspiring writer Ed Clinton through their common representation, and the men went on a nine-month road trip to research for a true American satire. The first draft was presented to Barry Spikings at EMI Films, hoping to attach Boyd himself as a director, with a budget of two to three million. But Spikings had so much faith in the project, he recommended pursuing a bigger name director and a more significant budget. For that reason, I'm tempted to blame him for what we're about to describe. <laughs> Somehow they got director John Schlesinger interested. Do you guys recall our last mention of John Schlesinger? No. No. In Modern Romance... An assistant editor named Harry calls Albert Brooks' Robert character looking for a job in the editorial department on this film. Listen, I gotta ask you something. Uh-huh. Who's gonna work on that Schlesinger film? What do you mean? Do you know if they need an assistant editor? Well, I'll tell you something. You're the best assistant editor in the world, so I think you ought to work on it. You want me to put a good word in for you? Did you do that? You got it. Listening to Schlesinger describe the project as brilliantly comical, occasionally dark, and, quote, the most complicated project I've ever attempted, unquote, makes me think that Schlesinger was possibly thinking of a different film. <laughs> In the same interview, though, he sounds preemptively defensive, arguing that if he'd wanted something commercial, he would have hired a pack of gag writers and vacated the directing chair, because apparently that's what audiences prefer now. I can't speak for them, but I certainly would have preferred that to this. You guys are already being real harsh on this one. Oh, no. I'm not saying that okay. it was great. Okay, we'll get there. Shelley Duvall was attached at one point, unsure for which role, but stepped away. Kay Medford was attached as the Sister Clarice character, but died of cancer early in production. Jessica Tandy only signed on because she wanted to work with Schlesinger, but she made no secret of her distaste for the script. The film shot over almost five months in Mount Dora, Florida, playing the city of Ticklaw, which was painted pink in its entirety for the film. So it was a real town that... It was a real town that they painted all the buildings pink in. And and the town was actually named Ticklaw? No, the town oh. was called Mount Dora, Florida. Oh. And the I-75 plays the part of the titular honky-tonk freeway. Unexpected weather conditions caused several delays in the schedule, but honestly, people need to expect shit weather in Florida. I feel like we've said that about like half of our Florida movies where they're like, oh, unexpected terrible weather. And it's like, yeah, it's Florida. <laughs> the original distribution deal was with Associated Film Distribution, but when they folded in January of 81, EMI pawned it off on Universal somehow. After the distribution deal was complete, Universal were furious to learn that EMI had already sold the international rights to the film in an effort to recoup some of their own $11 million losses. Oh, 
that seems like something you'd really definitely check before right? you made yeah. this deal. Yeah, I would think so. After a disappointing week in theaters, Universal pulled it completely. In that time, it made back less than $2 million of its $29 million <gasps> budget. Oh, no. Big, including, bu- big bucks, big losers? Yes. Yeah. Big bucks, big losers. Right. It, that included a $5 million marketing campaign from Universal. So they paid $5 million just to market it, and they got $2 million back for that investment. Well, not not counting what they paid for the movie. I feel like that happens a lot. Where like I just don't understand the quantity of money that That's people true. are willing to put into some of these marketing campaigns. That also includes a full million spent on the final car crash sequence alone. That's yeah, that's unnecessary. It was the most expensive comedy ever at the time and the undisputed bomb of the summer. More and, expensive than the Blues Brothers? Uh yeah. Wow. The Blues Brothers the production budget was less than 30. Damn. Because, I mean, I mean, because the quality of filmmaking and and the stunts and the gags and the Blues yeah. Brothers are, are light years ahead. 27.5. 27.5. So, so just, just barely. a couple million less. Yeah. Good value for money. It might have done even worse, except for a last-minute decision to edit out an F-bomb that brought the rating down from an R to a PG. This did not need to be R. No, it certainly didn't. One of the less audible songs from the largely original soundtrack, You're Crazy But I Like You, was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for Worst Original Song, but lost to Baby Talk from Paternity later this season. The title, You're Crazy But I Like You, would be paraphrased as one of my favorite lines in Todd Phillips' Old School. I like you, but you're crazy. Several actors and an animal were harmed in the making of the film. Beverly D'Angelo needed stitches on her face after an accident on set and was consequently unavailable for a large portion of shooting, and Paul Jabara, the rhino truck driver, broke his ankle offset, which threw another wrench into the schedule. I, I feel like you can see that his ankle is definitely broken in a scene. Because he's limping, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to the animal injury later in the discussion. Better not have been that goddamn elephant. It was a rhino. Okay. Mm. We open with palm trees silhouetted against the sunset, and the word Florida slides through the shot from right to left. Suddenly, explosives are detonated and the trees fall out of the shot. We cut to a tractor demolishing an orchard for a massive land development. It's the site of the incoming Andrew Jackson Freeway. Now we hear a crowd of angry people shouting over each other. This is a congregation at Ticklaw City Hall who are upset to learn that the incoming freeway will not feature an exit for their town. Mr. Kirk, a representative of the project, informs the town that they don't have enough people to warrant an exit. That doesn't make sense to me, to, just as a starting premise, because I'm like, do you really have to travel 35 miles from your town to get on the freeway that passes through your town? Yeah, that seems that crazy. Seems like, like, I don't, what? There what? are freeway exits for single gas stations. Yeah. yeah. And you're not going to have one for a full city with There's... what looks like thousands of people? I mean, we've, I've driven a long distances, I mean- you know, we've driven together long distances. Yeah. I don't think I've I've done a thirty-five mile span. Yeah, without there being without there being something. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you're out in the desert where there is nothing. Right. But if you're going through town from town to town. Yeah, if you're the only town in thirty-five miles, you get an exit for mm-hmm. sure. At least to get you know people to get gas. Yeah. Mayor Kirby T. Kalo, played by William Devane, bangs a gavel to quiet the crowd as the man speaks. 
Mr. Kirk's condescending tone eventually turns the whole crowd against him. Hey, 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 look! We can't give every little piddly ass town an exit! Piddly ass town! Kalo takes Kirk for a walk to grab lunch, and suddenly the mayor is reading voiceover about his distrust of government. Kalo tells us about all the eccentric efforts he's made to increase tourism in their small town. They've constructed a safari park where a man feeds a lion by hand. The mayor tells Mr. Kirk that the lion is sick, but it will be healthy before the exit is ready. Kalo asks point blank what it'll take to secure a freeway exit, and Mr. Kirk replies, somewhat confusingly, You take 10,000 trips on the table, that's how you do it. This is apparently code for $10,000. Even though Kirk used code to request the money, we cut right to a fundraising parade that makes no secret of the $10,000 goal to win a freeway exit. I actually thought that was kind of amusing, that the town... Just right away they're fun, like... Fundraises for a bribe. Yeah. Yeah. For a town with this many people, $10,000 should take an hour to raise tops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we see several hundred people gathered in the streets, but realistically, two or three businesses would cover this bill by themselves, considering the obvious return on their investment. This should have been closer to a half million dollars, not the price of a car. $10,000 won't buy the concrete for an off-ramp. Well, they're just trying to bribe him, not trying to pay for it. I know, but it just doesn't make sense to ask for so little if you're adding to the budget of this project. Well, he's probably getting 10000 per exit for... But they cost the more than that to make, is what I'm saying. No, but but he, they won't get made if the official doesn't say yes or no. Right. He, he's just getting paid as the official. Yeah. Elmer Bernstein's score for this sequence is uncomfortably close to what he used for Ivan Reitman's stripes earlier this year. Like, it's, it's almost the exact same. Right. It, it's like a variation on that theme. For comparison, here's the Honky Tonk score. <laughs> And here's the stripe score. Every once in a while, we cut back to the freeway under construction to see the progress. The roads are mapped out, asphalt is poured, and finally the completed freeway awaits traffic. Mayor Kalo brings out boxes of KFC to Kirk's office for a lunch meeting, but Kirk's box is packed to the brim with stacks of cash. He walks Kalo out to a miniature model of the Andrew Jackson Freeway in his office and slaps an off-ramp right next to Ticklaw. Looks like you got your exit, Mr. Kalo. As soon as Kalo leaves the room, Kirk yanks the off-ramp back up off the map and advises an assistant to forget what he's seen here today. I'm bothered by the fact that it's actually a diorama, considering the scale of this. Right. And How long is this freeway? You, don't ha you won't have the area of the freeway in this office that happened to have Ticklaw next to it. Yeah. Like, yeah. This thing would be miles long for yeah. a freeway. The, you could basically only fit Ticklaw if there's 35 miles between Ticklaw and the next town. Yeah. We cut to the freeway ribbon-cutting ceremony, and the governor, played by Jerry Hardin, does the honors with his novelty scissors. Kalo yanks Kirk aside to chew him out for taking the money in exchange for nothing, but Kirk insists that the rest of the commission vetoed the off-ramp. Kalo has brought protesters with a sign that reads, Promises are made in heaven, but carried out on earth. Kalo tries to intercept the governor after his speech, but the man walks right past him to a private plane parked on the freeway and takes off from the freeway. Now Kalo must plan a way to siphon tourists into his town, and we get a freeway montage under the film's title track. It's a honky-tonk freeway. It's America on wheels. We see Daniel Stern holding a sign hitchhiking his way to the Super Bowl. 
We see a charter bus tailgating a pair of nuns driving well below the speed of traffic. Do we have to go so fast, sister? The older nun tells the one driving that 45 is too fast and orders her to slam on the brakes, causing a multi-car accident in their wake. I mean, at this point, since we hadn't really established any of the characters and we had just said, hey, we have to figure out how to get people here. I was like, oh, wow, they're already like dressing up as nuns and causing accidents. So people will like pull off the freeway. Interesting. That is not what is happening here. Suddenly, we're seeing aerial footage of New York City, which a title informs us is 1,203 miles from Ticklaw. Inside a large bank, a homeless man harasses customers claiming to be O.J. Simpson. The customers aren't claiming to be O.J. Simpson. <laughs> he's, he's doing that. At the he's, time, he's just stabbing everybody in the bank. <laughs> right. At the time, Simpson was freshly retired from a successful career as a running back in the NFL and had not yet embarked on his better-known career searching for the real killers. <laughs> I thought, we were gonna, I thought you were going to say the Naked Gun movies. No, yeah. What was his name? Norberg? Nordberg, yeah. Nordberg. Two men, Eugene and Osvaldo, played by George DeZunza and Joe Grafasi, have a weirdly loud chat in line about their plans to rob this branch today. They've decided to commit this crime wearing their own actual work uniforms, hoping that the bank will assume that the uniforms were stolen. A teller turns away an actress trying to cash an unemployment check because she only has eight bucks in her account. She moves on to another teller, though I'm not sure why he wouldn't cash the check. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you don't have enough money to get more money? How am I supposed to get more money if you won't cash my checks? Eugene pulls a gun on a teller played by Nancy Ballbricker Parsons, sporting a decent beard here, and gets really confrontational with it. You try anything funny, I'll blow your ugly head right off. Eugene, you shut up. I've never seen you become so abusive. I'm robbing a bank. I don't have to be nice. The bank robbers overhear the actress's trouble and order the teller next to them to cash her check. As they leave the bank together, they invite her to ride with them to Florida, but she says she's busy, and Eugene becomes a hashtag nice guy. Gee, I'd really love to, but I have an audition. And sit on my face, bitch. This turn is ridiculous. Like yeah. we're, we're trying to set these guys up as like the robbers with a heart of gold, and then it's like, oh, they're just assholes also. So fuck these guys. Fuck everyone in this movie. Yeah, it, yeah, it's also not the the only time that a woman's slight rejection warrants the use of the term bitch yeah. for them. Yeah, it happens like, later from the the another hero of the film. Yeah, I was like, what? Where did that come from? Uh, real life. Yeah, <laughs> but these are supposed to be the protagonists. Know, like I even just, in the '80s, these yeah. weren't the good guys before this movie came out. When the cops finally get to the bank, the robbers are gone, but predictably they move to arrest the African-American homeless man whose only crime is a bad OJ impression. The tellers try to explain the mistake, but it's too late. The cops have committed to a course of action. On the street outside, Eugene and Osvaldo pass a dirty bag lady with a happy birthday crown on her head. She and Eugene exchange insults, and then she disappears from the film forever. Lots of single-serving characters like this one. The broke actress, etc. None of them come back. They're just... They get a couple lines, they disappear, we never see them again. Eugene and Osvaldo take the bags of money and three matching trash bags and then jump on board a passing garbage truck for an unsuspicious ride away from the robbery. They accidentally drop the wrong trash bag into the scoop and we see them hours later sorting through bags on a garbage barge until they finally find their money again. Seems terribly unnecessary to bother to add this i lost the money and then i immediately found the money again and this is a whole shoot day going out to this barge and renting a helicopter for this aerial shot of them finding the money it's just so much effort into these jokes that are not funny 
Well, yeah, because like plot wise, you have your money at the end of this. Why didn't you just keep your money? Yeah. Now we cut to Chicago, Illinois, 1,197 miles from Ticklaw, where a mother makes breakfast for her family. Behind her, husband Dwayne Hansen, played by Bo Bridges, reads to their children a manuscript for a children's book that he wrote. Ricky, the carnivorous pony, by Dwayne Hansen. Mrs. Hansen looks thoroughly unamused as she serves three plates of breakfast to her husband and sons. Everyone ignores her pleas for them to focus on breakfast, so they don't react at all when she tells them that the bus is here. They're too wrapped up in Dad's grotesque story about a child whose fingers were gnawed off by a carnivorous pony. The kids leave for the bus without taking a single bite of the breakfast Mom has prepared. On the kitchen TV, after a Cheerios commercial, a trans woman is being interviewed about her transition. How did your wife first react to the news when you went to her and you said to her, I want to be a woman? Well, she was not at all pleased. Is this a joke? I don't understand why we suddenly cut to this happening on the television there's no transgender characters throughout the rest of the story it's not it's not relevant at all do you guys recall the last time we saw a transgendered person interviewed on a television in the background oh shoot i do remember that happened it was was phil donahue it was a real episode of the phil donahue show yeah, and I feel like it was in a movie where we had... Where it was relevant slightly. Yeah. Oh, I don't remember. Dress to Kill. Oh, oh man. You, you fathered three children and you have engaged in at least two heterosexual relationships. Oh, more than that, I've always oh. been a devout heterosexual. <laughs> Mom notices that the kids have left their mittens behind. As Dad walks them to the bus, he takes off both their hats, too. An open box of Cheerios still sits in the middle of the kitchen table despite nobody eating them for breakfast from what we saw. When Dwayne returns, he asks about the burning smell and she points him to the ashes of his manuscript in the sink. She hates his stories and she hates him. We cut to Dwayne in his car later writing a second draft of the carnivorous pony story while driving a car, eliciting honks from less distracted drivers. Dwayne sees a woman driver in headphones and they share an amused glance. Then he has to nudge the car in front of him to wake the driver. Dwayne passes a billboard with big seductive eyes inviting the viewer to fall in love with Florida. We cut to Ticklaw where the freeway passes right over the main road without an off-ramp. We see the employees of a fruit stand, gas station, and hotel just waiting for anyone to show up. The animals at the safari park sit bored in their enclosures, unvisited. (laughs) They would be much happier if there were people staring at them. Exactly. We get a close-up of a pair of enormous water skis on a beach, and an animal handler gently guides an elephant's foot into the footholds of each ski. Out on the water, the mayor is trying to tow the elephant across the surface with a small speedboat. Eventually, the outboard motor gives out, and the boat quickly sinks. At this point, I was grateful that the production didn't actually tow this elephant out onto the water, but we'll come back to that, obviously. In the lobby of the hotel, the mayor assures the staff that he can afford to keep them all on as he takes a call from the Little Kenya Wildlife Park in snowy Wellsville, Utah, 2,533 miles from Ticklaw. Little Kenya Park has closed permanently, and the remaining staff are having a hell of a time coaxing a rhino into their truck. For some reason, the production thought it was safe to allow a dog to run in circles around this rhino, but it looks pissed off, and it's knocking people down all over the place. It doesn't look to me like a well-coordinated set piece. While they struggle with the animal, we see the truck driver, TJ Tupas, writing music in the cab while he waits. I think the shot of this guy specifically was when I decided that this movie officially has too many characters who seemed like they were going to get their own subplots and were not even done introducing people. 
Oh, no, there's about 100 people in this movie. Yeah, literally. The men finally wrestle the rhino into the back of the truck, and the singer-songwriter truck driver pulls away for the long drive to Florida. This particular rhino died the next day, Ugh. possibly as a result of having been run around in the snow all day on set. Oh, God. So they had to get another rhino? Or they shot this last. As the scene ends, he is suddenly writing the words to another of the film's several original songs. The man playing TJ is actually Paul Jabara, the writer and performer of this particular song on the soundtrack. Now we cut to Paducah, Kentucky, 758 miles from Ticklaw, where Carmen Shelby, played by Beverly D'Angelo, pulls up to a drive through bank branch in a gorgeous pink Edsel with matching dice on the mirror. The teller flirts with her through the intercom as she withdraws her full account balance, somewhere in the neighborhood of $3,500. Next, she crosses an intersection to a drive-in mortuary designed to look just like the bank with several lanes. Is this an actual thing? No. Are you sure? Did you no, look the, it up? I didn't look it up, <laughs> but there's no way this is a thing. I, I don't know. It could be a thing. There's like drive through liquor stores. Yeah, but people need liquor more often than they need loved ones in urns. Yeah, but I'm but I'm just saying like it was a it's not just like a pickup thing, it's a viewing location too, right? It's possible this exists. Okay. I'm saying I s strongly doubt it. <laughs> she pulls up to the intercom and announces her arrival and a voice tells her which lane to pull into to retrieve her mother's cremains. Apparently, the voice through the intercom is a friend of hers, an ex-boyfriend, but that plays into literally nothing moving forward. Well, other than the fact that everyone, everyone is an ex-boyfriend yeah. of hers. This movie is full of worthless little details like that that don't really improve the scene or move the plot forward at all. It's just like, oh, here, I thought this was funny, so now you get to know it. When she pulls her car into pass-through three, her mother's urn rises on a platform and the window in front of it is rolled down so she can retrieve it. She looks genuinely sad for a moment, but then notices a cherry red Lincoln Continental for sale across the street and we cut to her driving that car with mom's ashes in the passenger seat. No idea why this happened. Yeah, I like the car that she had. Yeah, it was a much cooler car, the Edsel, than this car. And it plays no part in anything moving forward. It's not important that her car is red or that she just bought it. She doesn't, nothing happens to it. It's just well, for no reason she gets to drive a different car for the rest of the movie. I, I suppose you could say the fact that she got the new car prevented her car from being stolen later on. But she could have been driving this car the whole time. Yeah. There's no reason for her to just be buying it. Later on the interstate, she sees a man driving a Jeep and tells him he's cute, only for the man's boyfriend to rise up from behind him in the passenger seat, and she realizes she's barking up the wrong tree. Ah, you're both very cute. Bye. On the same freeway, we see Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy as Sherman and Carol in a 1949 Mercury station wagon with wood paneling. It's so crazy that they got paired to be husband and wife in this film. Yeah. Well, I, this apparently isn't the only film that they play husband and wife. That was, that was the joke. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've Googled it. drive through funeral homes for drive through viewings is totally a thing. I wow. really wanted you to say, no, it's not. It's totally a thing. I and Googled there is it. one in Chicago, Illinois. Or there was one, at least. I don't know if there currently is. Really? Yes. So, <laughs> I'm just trying to get a grip on the business model. They have urns. So, it's, it's, it's to allow people to attend a funeral without 
some of the things that might prevent people from being able to go to a funeral otherwise. You like don't, what? You don't have to exit the car. What if you're sick? What if you're elderly? Like I what feel if, like people just went to funerals sick up until a few years ago. Yeah, but I'm just saying like, you know. What like, if you don't want to see any other members of the family or? I, I am honestly shocked that this is a real thing because it seems like. There isn't enough demand. Yeah, there could not possibly be a necessity for that. How how often are they hosting it's a mo- funerals? It's a here? modern convenience, sweetie. <laughs> Very weird. I, I feel like the next step is the uh, automat. Here's your urn. Yeah, <laughs> I, am now, I am now going to request a drive-through funeral, please. <laughs> All right, deal. I believe there's one down in Compton. We can make this happen. Update I'm, your I'm not will. Going to Compton, but <laughs> great. Carol fixes herself a mixed drink in the passenger seat. They park outside a restaurant called Turkey House, and as they cross the parking lot to go inside, it becomes clear that Carol has had a few too many. She closes the car door on her skirt and then walks away, tearing it off. So Sherm, as she refers to him, wraps her in his coat. She tells him it was just a little accident, and then for no reason, the editors decided to play her saying the same line again. I guess they only had one take of this because they used the exact same recording instead of a slight variation. It's just a little accident. It's just a little accident. Um, Miss Tandy, could you say that line again? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Meep. You mean meep meep? No. They only paid me to say it once, then they doubled it up on the soundtrack. Cheap bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Two men outside Turkey House watch the older couple disappear into the restaurant and then make plans to steal their car. The nicer of the two carjackers wants to unload the older couple's valuable belongings before stealing the car. Carol makes plenty of excuses why she drinks. When Sherm asks her to stop boozing it up, she says mixed drinks aren't booze. She also tells him that she doesn't try to hide her drinking, which is a very common sign of alcoholism. When the waiter comes to take their drink orders, Carol makes a big one. I love five old fashions. Somehow the older couple don't notice the two men unloading their car right outside the window for a solid five minutes, but when Carol finally notices, Sherman assumes that she's talking drunken nonsense. Oh God. Now we cut to another car full of people that we need to follow all the way to Ticklaw. <laughs> These are the Kramers from Arizona, 2,198 miles from Ticklaw. They're traveling through Monument Valley in a Southwind motorhome. The mother and father of this family are being played by Terry Garr and Howard Hessman. Their children in the backseat are Delia and Billy, and Billy, of course, is instantly recognizable here as A Christmas Story's Peter Billingsley. The kids are watching two separate portable televisions in the back, ignoring the majesty of the landscape. Billy says he has to pee and refuses to use the onboard toilet that Dad paid extra for. We cut back to Ticklaw, where Mayor Kalo is speaking at the head of a church. It seems like he's the preacher here in addition to being the mayor. The whole town is dying from lack of tourism and preacher protagonist character was giving me cold turkey vibes. Mm-hmm. Kalo urges the town to have faith that they can work together to lure tourists back to Ticklaw. Then together they sing the Ticklaw anthem. They paint the whole town pink and install a billboard beside the freeway that says, Get in the pink, come to Ticklaw, which makes it sound more like a brothel than a town. Yeah. And and with the pink elephant, I thought, were they going to paint the elephant pink? And that was yeah. like the whole lure was going to be a pink elephant? But they didn't do it. Words across the bottom of the sign invite tourists to see the world's only skiing elephant. Later that night, we see Dwayne in a booth at a diner asking a waitress for a coffee refill, but she walks right past him. Excuse me, could I have more coffee, please? Hey, 
Bitch. What yeah. the fuck? Yeah. Carmen at the bar finds herself inexplicably drawn to this man and rises to refill the coffee that the waitress ignored. He complains to her about waitresses in general, and then she informs him that she is a waitress. Oh, I'm sure you're one of the good ones, though. I can't imagine anybody who's a waitress having overheard that interaction. And then offering yeah. to refill his drink for free. Yeah, and be enamored with him yeah. in any way. <laughs> he asks what she keeps in the obvious urn at her feet, and after she explains it's her mother's ashes, she carries the urn to his booth and takes a seat across from him. He tells her that he's a copy machine repairman, and she seems impressed by this. He invites her out for a drink, but Carmen reminds him it's getting light. She tells him that she and her mother planned a vacation for a long time, but mom died before they ever went anywhere. So now she's all about that carpe diem life. YOLO, as we would say now. We would not. Yeah, We would we, not. No. <laughs> One would. That, that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> we cut away to the truck full of safari animals as the driver weaves wildly through traffic. He sings the song he's been writing, Faster Faster, to his passenger as he passes the Kramer's motorhome. Young Billy Kramer stands and reminds his parents that he has to pee, and that he refuses to use the bathroom in the motorhome, insisting on truck stop restrooms. His sister tortures him by turning on a faucet in the motorhome's kitchenette. For some reason, they pull over and let their six-year-old child walk into a crowded truck stop bathroom by himself. He's not tall enough to use the urinal on his own, so the men on either side of him lift him up by one arm each. I thought that actually was pretty cute. No, I thought it was cute too, but one of them should be his dad here in the bathroom (laughs) with him. Elsewhere on the freeway, Sherman and Carol are somehow in a new car, and it's already broken down in the rain. This movie has like eight different storylines, and they're all painfully unfunny. Sherman loses his temper and climbs out of the car, shouting into the rain and traffic to return his car as though he expects it to drive by any minute. Apparently, the car was a prize from an ad agency that he worked for, and he's especially upset about it. He's confident that they will never make it to Florida, and they'll probably die here tonight. He predicts the wording of his own obituary. Sherman Schaeffler sneezed himself to death in a rented car by the side of the road with his alcoholic wife. Oh, I'm sorry. She takes offense at this comment, despite having drank five old fashions with her fucking lunch today. (laughs) Like, yes, you're an alcoholic. She was hungry. They decide they're going to walk together to the nearest gas station when their tow truck finally arrives. When the tow truck driver tests the ignition, the car starts up right away, and he charges them $45 for his efforts. We see Daniel Stern still thumbing for a ride in the rain. The bank robbers roll by in a blue VW bug, and we establish that Osvaldo sneezes when he sees pictures of naked women, like the ones in Eugene's penthouse magazine. They pull over to pick up Daniel Stern and offer him a ride. The hitchhiker starts snorting coke in their backseat and offers them a hit, but they pass. Daniel Stern is for some reason amused by the green lights on the road and mentions that they have similar lights in lots of other places. Green signs. But but we're seeing green lights. He calls them green signs, but then when we the camera cuts to a reverse angle and it's just green lights over the freeway. Okay, well, I thought he meant that the fact that freeway signs are the same every in every town. Right, they're yeah. No, I, I think that's probably what the line meant in the dialogue when they wrote it but the way they shoot it he's talking about green lights for some reason instead of signs but then as a hilarious joke he just starts listing places for a long time while eugene and i get more and more annoyed (laughs) we dissolve to a man drawing a caricature of a busty blonde woman in a building lobby and across the room her manager played by david rashi pimps her out to an interested businessman at the front desk the nuns try to check into a hotel but Sister Clarice is having a hard time identifying herself for the hotel employee because she claims not to have a last name. 
until Sister Mary Magdalene hazards a guess. Christ. Excuse me? Well, technically, since we're all brides of Christ, our last... Sorry. Well, I have a Claire, a Clinton, a Clarice. Oh, oh. that's me. That's me. Sister Clarice. Eventually, they're given a room key despite insisting on paying cash since they don't have a credit card. A young man named Kevin leads them to their room. We know his name is Kevin because he gets a name and lines despite being basically a luggage cart in the scene. Yeah. So at this point, because they're like, it feels like they're being sneaky trying to get into this hotel and they're not giving their names. Yeah. Like, I'm still on the, these aren't actually nuns kick. And right. that never pays off. No, nope, it doesn't. They're, they're actually nuns. No, they're just very weird nuns for some reason. Sister Mary is distracted by the Starlight Disco Dance Club off the lobby and the pimp character winks at her from the doorway before Sister Clarice drags her away to the room. Early the next morning, Sister Mary rises and sneaks out of the room to go for a swim in her pajamas. If you cut out every scene of this movie that doesn't serve a purpose to the plot, there would be nothing left. (laughs) Mayor Kalo and his wife are standing on the side of the freeway next to the billboards they put up last night and bizarrely, The safari park, gas stations, and fruit stand are all being advertised as completely free, meaning they're not bringing any business to their small town, just traffic. They're not getting any (laughs) money from it at all. In fact, they're all losing money. They're losing more money than they would if they didn't put up these billboards. It's a a loss leader. That's what that's called. What is the... What is the thing that you make the money off of? The, the rest of the things that people buy when they're in town. Are, are there other things? It seems like everything is free because they just want people to come there. I thought that was just free gas and then everything else and you get a But hotel they said the fruits were free and the hotel is free and the, everything Did is free. Did they say that the hotel was free? Yeah. Everything oh, okay. is listed as being free. I just remember the free gas signs. We see Dwayne naked in bed with Shelby. So I guess this character has officially left his wife and children because she burned his dumb story. Yep. I wish screenwriter Edward Clinton's wife had set this script on fire. (laughs) Next, we get a weird IHOP commercial where Dwayne and Shelby sit in a booth at an IHOP and she claims that she always sits in this booth, but then confusingly admits that she's never been to this location before. Well, that's her point, though, is that every IHOP is the same. I've never been to two IHOPs that looked anything alike. Maybe that this was different but in the early 80s. Metaphorically, it feels like home to her because she's it's But consistent. she says specifically, I sit in the same booth every time. I always sit in this it's booth, It's hyperbole she says. to try to drive the point home that, she, that, that she's from all over the place, but IHOPs are always the same. Does it not feel like product placement to you? No, for I'm a sure, character I'm in the sure film to is, say, but the just... International House of Pancakes is the one consistent thing in my life. <laughs> the International House of Pancakes is the one consistent thing in my life. I know, but I'm just saying, you're, you're missing the point because you're taking it too literally. Yeah, well, I just, the way she says it makes it seem like, oh, I always sit in this particular booth. And then she's like, I've never been here before, but IHOPs are great and I like IHOP. Go to IHOP. In the parking lot, the same guys who took Sherman and Carol's car try to steal Shelby's using the combination lock on the driver's side door. They guess the combo to open the trunk, but eventually give up on the car, deciding instead to steal Dwayne's Chevy with a Slim Jim. No, Richard. (laughs) Inside, Dwayne tells Shelby that he wants to... (laughs) Dwayne tells Shelby that he wants to help her spread her mother's ashes in Miami and she confesses to a sexual body count of 300 men in the same city of Paducah, Kentucky. He is unfazed. Wasn't easy. It's an accomplishment. Mercifully, when they steal Dwayne's car, they leave all of his crap in the parking spot. In the neighboring car lot, we can see Sherman's Mercury for sale for $10,000. So these these car thieves are presumably just like 
they stealing steal a, a car, car, go to the next town, sell that one, steal yeah. another car in that town, and then sell yep. it in the next town over. And, and they, they live just... off the money they make selling the cars. Okay. Because at the time, there was no way to track cars. This is pre-VIN number, apparently. We cut to David Rashi the pimp and his call girl driving an Excalibur down the freeway. Do you guys recall the last time we saw an Excalibur? <laughs> was it an Excalibur? It was. <laughs> Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Do you remember the time before that? <laughs> uh, um, what's the name of that movie? Um, Hollywood Nights. No. Shit. Uh, <laughs> another teen movie. I don't know. What was the name of that? Uh, it had two titles. Pinball Summer. There you go. Uh, Pinball Summer. We're a two Excalibur family now. The call girl complains about having to pose as a dog for their customer last night. Eugene the bank robber sees a honk of your horny bumper sticker and starts laying on the horn, but then pulls up beside the same Jeep from earlier, now with a second gay couple in the backseat, and Eugene is embarrassed. Later, in a Henderson's department store, Eugene spots a salesgirl he finds attractive, and when she notices him, she hides from him and sends her manager to intervene. Eugene claims that he's just browsing, and then he picks up panties from the counter and sniffs them hard, apparently arousing himself even though these are presumably unsoiled panties for sale. You know? It's just fabric. For everyone, it's different. You know, maybe that's his thing. This scene takes so long to end. It's just really <laughs> uncomfortable. Osvaldo is trying on lots of clothes, asking Eugene how he looks and how his butt looks in them. And then Eugene returns to the same counter, sprays perfume on the panties, and then tucks them into his shirt pocket, but not discreetly, like they're hanging out mostly out of the pocket and then he gestures to them so the manager will see what he has done for unknown reasons like are you buying them now why <laughs> what are you doing i don't understand the point of the scene and i would be curious to see the script <laughs> in case there's hints as to what this scene was meant to convey in the action lines or something uh, uh clinton this this the script is only three pages long <laughs> make it up, make it up. It, it took two hours to write. I thought we, it would take two hours to film. We auditioned 105 <laughs> characters to have lines in this movie. The town of Ticklaw already seems bustling with tourists who are taking advantage of all the free gas and fruits they can while this amazing deal is still running. Mr. Kirk, the freeway representative who denied the city's off-ramp, is also here, driving through the town, and he overhears a child advertising the free gas and free restaurants. Keeping in mind that Clark would have had to have driven 35 miles out <laughs> right. of his way. He came here by coincidence? Yeah. What drew him here? And what drew all these people here? Burning up all that gas to get free gas? Yeah. It seems counterproductive. Yeah, you wasted an entire tank so that you could refill your car. Kirk overhears a child advertising the free gas and free restaurants and says out loud that they'll have to put a stop to this scheme. Oddly enough, he says it in a completely different voice than the character spoke with earlier, suggesting that it was not only ADR, but a completely different actor talking for some reason. This is also very weird because he's complaining about the oil companies being upset about this, but I'm like, yeah. this doesn't affect it. It's not like he's giving away, they're giving away something that they are losing money on. Right. It's not the oil companies that are going to lose but money on it. some states do have laws that you can't sell below cost for gasoline. I don't understand the logic behind it. I think it's like corporate anti-competition law, hmm. but there are places that have rules that say you can't sell for less than you paid for the gas. Oh, okay. Well, that, I mean, that might make sense, honestly. But I don't know why that would hurt the oil companies because someone paid for the gas yeah, right, exactly. for it to get here. Right. It, would, it would piss off the other 
gas stations in the area. Yeah. And but it'd be you like, would have to pay a fine anyway. It's like the dollar hot dogs at Costco. It just gets right. you in the door. Yeah. But the difference is that Costco isn't giving everything away for free. Yes. <laughs> you just make it just free gas and then everything else is that you get. Also, the Costco that I go to, the hot dog thing is outside. That's true. Yeah, but you're already there. You're just, you're still, <laughs> yeah, if you already I, parked at a Costco. You already bothered. To, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> I went there for the hot dogs. I know what I'm about. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't blame you. The hot dogs are wonderful. Back on the beach, we see the elephant's feet being placed back into the water skis for a second attempt. Even though they haven't successfully pulled off the stunt once in rehearsal, they already have a crowd here to potentially disappoint. And I don't know why they're waiting like three weeks between attempts. Like, just get this figured out in an hour. Don't just do it once and then wait two weeks. Mr. Kirk shows up just in time to interrupt the show and declare the billboards illegal. He also says that the oil companies will be mad when they see that Ticklaw is offering free gas. Mr. Kalo tells Kirk that he can go now, but the stunt organizers mistake this as a cue to drag the elephant out into the water. You'll pay for this. We already have, and I think you can go now. Go now! It's not like they weren't ready or anything, though, so it's not even really an accident. Yeah, it, it, poor choice of words on the mayor's part. Yeah. It turns out the elephant is still too heavy for this boat to tow him for very long, but for about five seconds, the elephant appears to be skiing on water before he sinks to his knees, and the crowd seems disappointed, and they're booing. I would still be applauding because I didn't expect this to work at all. We cut to construction crews cutting down the illegal billboards with chainsaws. That night, Mayor Kalo is drunk and wandering around on the freeway, kicking at the concrete partitions on either side of the road as his wife tries to talk him into coming home. For some reason, Kalo is convinced that all they need to do to save the town is for the skiing elephant stunt to work. If she get up, just once they come, hell, I would. I'm dying of curiosity. What do you mean you would? You're the mayor of this town. You're going to come here if the elephant can ski? He's saying if he were a tourist, he would go to a water skiing elephant. But he can't know that. He's here. He's the mayor here. Anyway. The driver with the truck full of wild animals buys a crapload of probably free cheeseburgers and proceeds to throw them at animals to eat for lunch. We literally see a hamburger hit a lion in the face before it freaks out and suddenly the truck is shaking back and forth with angry animals. He's the, not at Ticklaw yet, so they're not free hamburgers. No, these aren't free. That's true. He probably paid for these ones. It's very but, expensive meals for these animals. But you definitely see it. He throws a hamburger into the truck and it hits a real lion in the face. <laughs> The bank robbers take their fancy new clothes to a brothel called the Roman Health Spa, hosted in a double-wide trailer. It seems like Osvaldo is finished with his appointment first and has to sit in a waiting room until Eugene is finished, something Eugene had promised him would not happen again. Some of the girls here are watching a cooking show hosted by Anne Ramsey playing a Julia Child-esque TV chef character. Yeah. What a crappy waste of Anne Ramsey's incredible comedic abilities. It, it was like just I did I did I saw her and I confirmed it but just hearing the voice I was like yeah. I know who that is yeah but it was weird because like I assumed oh this is some Anne Ramsey thing that I don't know about like a sketch she did on something and right, about right. to launch into a joke but no she's literally just listing off ingredients and it was original for this film they had Anne Ramsey they just took her to a kitchen and shot like five seconds of a not funny cooking show and it's like why didn't you use her right and as soon as i saw her i, I immediately went to the credits was like look up logan or yeah him. he's like, got to be in here somewhere yeah, right? right it's crazy that he's not yeah considering there's about a thousand people in the credits yeah, yeah. 
We see the nuns in a gas station store, and when they come outside, their car is gone, but their suitcases are sitting by the gas pump, so this is the, the bandits who take cars and leave stuff. Sister Clarice picks up her suitcase and announces that they are walking to Miami Beach from here. We cut to another sermon from Mayor Kalo, and then we cut to a montage of all the movies, too many characters driving on the honky-tonk freeway. Dwayne and Shelby, Carol Sherman and the Hitchhiker, a bus labeled Asian American Orphan Association, the jeep full of gay guys, the two nuns hitchhiking, and then the Kramers who pull the motorhome over to collect the nuns. The pimp and call girl pull the Excalibur into a parking lot for Jonah's Retreat, a restaurant with a huge whale sculpture sticking out of the side of the building. Obviously, you enter through the mouth to get inside. Yes. Do you recall the last time we had a bus full of Asian tourists? Under the rainbow? Yeah. Yeah. Or, no, gas? Oh, God, which one was first? Which one was second? I think Under the Rainbow came after gas. Under the Rainbow, it was a photography club. Yeah. And in gas, it was a collection of Asian American Elvis impersonators. Mm. All of the characters in this movie, except for the citizens of Ticklaw, are here in the restaurant, but almost none of them have anything to do. Eddie the Pimp flirts with a waitress named Grace and offers her a job as one of his call girls. Here's my question. Are you unhappy in your present job? You sound like a commercial on television at 2 a.m. Oh, you know she's right, Eddie. You well, do of, sort of. Yes, of course she's right. But you see, what I'm selling, they don't offer on TV. The waitress brings an order of crabs to the table with the four gay guys and the hitchhiker. Who gets the crabs? Honey, we all do sooner or later. <laughs> the hitchhiker notices the urn that Shelby is still bringing with her everywhere. He assumes for some reason that it is drugs and not ashes and then sits down across from her at the table. Again, we have skipped the moment where Dwayne noticed that his car was stolen and consequently has to ride with Shelby wherever she's going. Right. When Dwayne returns to the table, the hitchhiker introduces himself for the first time. Spanky is the name. Cocaine is the game. As Shelby explains to Dwayne who this man is, Spanky is slowly unscrewing the urn and grabs a handful of cremains. He asks what it is, and instead of answering, Shelby waits like five full seconds for the hitchhiker to snort some and put the rest in his mouth before answering, That's my mother! <coughs> You're shitting me. The only funny moment of this scene, and maybe the whole movie, comes right here, and it looks like a happy accident. Spanky tries to drink some water to get the cremains out of his mouth, and as he chokes, he spits across the table, hitting Beverly D'Angelo square in the chest, and it looks like Stern breaks here because yeah. he wasn't supposed to do that. He tries to cover his face for the rest of the scene to avoid laughing. He walks away to the bank robber's table and takes a sip from Eugene's beer before continuing to a booth with some of the Asian American orphans from the charter bus. At the table with the Kramers and nuns, the daughter, Delia, tells Sister Mary that she looks like a penguin, and apparently this is the first time that Mary has ever been made aware that nuns famously resemble penguins. So she bursts into tears and renounces her nunitude. Do you remember the last time we had a nun compared to a penguin? I'm assuming Blues Brothers. Yeah. yeah. Eddie the Pimp is quick to try to take advantage, but she walks right past him. Back at their table, the waitress Grace joins Eddie and his call girl, sobbing because she's decided to take him up on his offer for a better life. Suddenly, Dwayne is reading the story of Ricky the Carnivorous Pony to a large group of Asian American orphans, and their driver is translating the story for them. At the end of the story, the pony goes crazy and bites off a kid's fingers, but it's played for laughs. Back in Ticklaw, a bulldozer is employed to dig their own freeway off-ramp. Hours later, they are tucking bundles of dynamite into the underside of the overpass. 
at, at this point, I, w- I was making a happy prediction. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, are all of these people going to get final destinationed on this freeway? <laughs> like, oh, my God. Is, is that what the epic conclusion of this movie is? Why we're spending so much time with them? Yeah, and making us hate them so much. Yeah, that, the, it, that they're all just going to get blown up or crash here yeah. at this final moment. That would have been a very interesting movie. Driving along the freeway, we see the Excalibur with Grace in the passenger seat, even though Eddie promised the first call girl that she had dibs on the front seat. A title indicates that these characters are now 24 miles from Ticklaw. We get a quick montage of other characters we're following, but nothing interesting. In Shelby's car, she and Dwayne are singing along to some country music on the radio. Do you guys recall the last time we heard Beverly D'Angelo singing country music? Uh, Coal Miner's Daughter? That is correct. She played Patsy Cline in that movie. Spanky is now on the orphan bus with his guitar and performs a song for the kids. The kids are playing some kind of telephone game, and the first one says, Licky is a very big and dangerous white horse. The next kid says, Licky can spit fire and kill people. And the last kid says, Licky can destroy whole cities. They're sharing their versions of the story that they were told at the restaurant about Ricky the Carnivorous Pony. The overpass explosives are all wired together to a single plunger. We see the Kramer's motorhome again with both nuns on board, even though the last scene, one of those two nuns had decided to quit being a nun. The people of Ticklaw verify that the freeway is clear before pushing down on the plunger. Unfortunately, just before they set things off, a final car containing the car thieves is crossing the bridge. The explosion takes a second to happen, but the bridge erupts a few car lengths behind them, so they don't even get their comeuppance for stealing everyone's vehicles. Yeah. Also, before them, another car crosses the bridge and a police car is chasing it. Right. But he's not chasing the car thieves. It's just chasing an unrelated car. Correct. We never even see inside either of those cars. It seems the plan has worked if their plan is to kill all the motorists who drive off this cliff to their deaths. They quickly rush onto the road to install signs that they could have installed without blowing up the freeway, pointing all the cars to Ticklaw's makeshift off-ramp. They throw a big party for all their new guests at the town's largest hotel. Eddie moves around the lobby selling his call girls to various customers, and he keeps winking at Sister Mary. Eddie tells Osvaldo that he should go talk to Grace in five minutes. In the background of this scene, you can barely hear the soundtrack's Razzie-nominated song, You're Crazy But I Like You. So much random dialogue happens in this scene, but almost none of it is worth repeating. Mrs. Kramer turns down Mr. Kramer's various sexual propositions. Dwayne and Carmen make decor choices for their future home together. I can't believe how pointless all these words are. Even the actions. We're just like moving from room to room as people talk to each other, but they're not saying anything. They're just words, back and forth. Doesn't make any sense. Carmen spills her mom's ashes and looking for cleaning supplies bumps into Mr. Kramer in the hallway, so they have sex in a closet. Dwayne walks through the spilled ashes and leaves ash tracks through the room, but he doesn't find Carmen or notice what he stepped in. Yeah, and this this never comes back. Yeah, we never see that urn again in this room. He never notices that he walked through it. Like, it seems like there's a lot of stuff cut out, but I'm also sure there wasn't. But they just (laughs) felt like this wasn't worth coming back to in the script. At the safari park at night, the kids are walked from enclosure to enclosure. They're excited to see a lion and an elephant. But when Mrs. Radley brings out the park's white pony for the children to pet, they remember the story of Ricky and run screaming when they think the pony is eating Mrs. Radley's fingers. The phone rings in the party. The governor is calling for Mr. Kalo. For no apparent reason, the governor has assumed that all of Ticklaw's new guests were taken hostage, and the governor wants to know their demands. I I went back 
there has to be something that was cut here. I, I, I was like, did I miss something? And I, I, I kept going back. And I was like, there's no what clues scene to this. that I missed that, that, that this like, How did the mayor find out or th- how did he find out? Find and out? why is he assuming that this is a hostage situation well, out of nowhere? There w- I mean, the fact is that they used explosives on the freeway, but he so, doesn't like, know that. But I don't know how he knows anything right now. It's the middle of right. the night. This that just too. happened. Yeah, yeah. That too, yes. Yeah, all of this makes no sense. But also the mayor understands. And in a uniquely awful bit of screenwriting, Kalo inexplicably admits that they are hostages and he has no demands instead of correcting the governor. But yeah, I don't understand why he doesn't correct him. Because no, it feels like this was part of a plan that we don't see. Yeah. So their plan was to blow up the freeway and get people off the freeway but we think that in something we didn't see part of their plan was to convince everybody that they were hostages except for the people themselves correct so that they could use that as leverage to get the off ramp they wanted that must be the case i mean i feel like that makes more sense to me because i was going to complain about the fact that i'm like you blew this up this is a temporary thing that you're convincing people to come right you should have just put signs on the freeway but also if you took a bunch of people hostage they're not just going to reward you for that. They're going to come and arrest you the next day. Right. And and arrest you for destroying... Uh, right. Millions know. of dollars yeah. worth of freeway. Yeah. Government property. Hostages? We don't intend doing anything with them. We got no real use for them. Why did he ask hostages like it was a question if he didn't plan on denying taking anyone hostage? Yeah. The governor's assistant, played by James Staley, but channeling Tim Conway reminds the governor not to negotiate with terrorists, and the governor gets the only potential laugh line of the film. Remember, Attica, never give in to demands. Don't meet with them. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> oh, where did you want to meet? Well, how about right down the center of Ticklaw? <laughs> I just love that shut the fuck up because I was not expecting it. And it's the only F-bomb in the film because they cut the other one out. Mm. So it's just like, <laughs> it's like you're watching a TV movie and then suddenly that line drops into the middle of it. After he hangs up, the governor seems to blame Kirk for this whole conundrum since he was the one who vetoed the off-ramp to Ticklaw. Upstairs, Mr. Kramer and Shelby share a cigarette in the closet doorway and part ways without getting caught for their infidelities or contributing to the plot in any meaningful way. Kramer comes down the steps to the lobby side by side with the waitress-turned-call girl, Grace, and somehow Mrs. Kramer concludes that he has cheated on her with this woman and decides to test him. How would you like to go up to the room and just be alone together? You and I. Well, I'm a little tired right now, honey. Hungry, too. Hungry. Hungry? This is all the confirmation she needed, and her eyes well up with tears as her husband walks away for his apparently ritual post-coital sandwich. But he did cheat. But not with her. But not with her. Yeah. So he's getting caught for a thing that he didn't do. Right. He could have just been caught with her. Right. It's irrelevant that this is not Beverly D'Angelo walking down the stairs with him. It's a weird extra layer. Yeah. Well, it was probably when D'Angelo was unavailable to shoot. Oh, maybe. Oh, maybe. And so they're just like, we need, we, we need him walking down with somebody. Right. The old nun catches the young nun dancing and explains that that's a sin and drags her up to their room while Dwayne goes door to door in the hotel still looking for Carmen. Sister Clarice makes Sister Mary kneel on a line of pencils in their hotel room bathroom when Dwayne pops in and thinks he stumbled on something kinky and excuses himself. The governor arrives in town and they locate a ringing phone booth on the main road. The governor's assistant answers the call and delivers the message. They said get out of the cars and meet them in the middle of the street. So why did they even call this phone if they're standing right over there waiting to meet with you in this street? Which, again, all this makes me think that this was all a plan. Right. 
Because why would the mayor, like, have all this set up? Right. When the governor is face-to-face with Kalo, the mayor makes a demand that for some reason he didn't make over the phone. An exit for tick law. Well, taking hostages is not the way to go about it. Well, we tried bribery, but that didn't work, right, Mr. Kirk? You still got the 10 thou? Yeah, that's not the right way either, Kalo. Your town is too small. Fuck off. You don't get to say to the governor, but we bribed this other unrelated person. Why didn't we get the thing we wanted? Is, is that the right way? No, the right way is to have enough people to warrant a freeway off-ramp. The governor reminds Kalo that he won't negotiate with terrorists, but then, why is he here asking for demands? He just wanted to say no in person? We hear explosions in the distance, which are actually just fireworks, and the governor looks worried for the hostages and retrieves the bribe from Kirk to return to Kalo. The mayor laments that he has lost his faith in people since paying the requested bribe was so callously ignored, and the governor reminds him that his campaign slogan was, I deliver. Kalo takes the hint and drops Kirk's bribe in the governor's hand, and voila, the off-ramp is approved. Fireworks continue to crackle in the sky above. Dwayne finally finds Carmen and kisses her. We never get any resolution where she admits that she had sex with someone else. It's just, they love each other and they're back together now. Eddie finally makes contact with Sister Mary and offers her a hanky for her tears. The governor never demands to see the hostages released or anything. Lucky for Kalo because they had no hostages, and we cut to the next day as the last car en route to Ticklaw, the one full of animals, is racing down the freeway. The driver sings the same song again for the third or fourth time in the film. It's played like the arrival of the animals is a big deal, but they already have a lion. Yeah. So a second lion is not interesting, and the elephant is already basically just a soft rhino. Nobody's waiting for these animals. The kids seemed thoroughly impressed with what the park already had. Sister Clarice gets a ride with the bank robbers, and they see Eddie's Excalibur pass by with three call girls now that Sister Mary has joined the crew. Hey, isn't that Sister Mary Magdalene? Yes. Where's she going? To hell, I'm afraid. Traffic cops direct all the cars back up onto the freeway. Of course, just as he comes to the gap in the freeway, the rhino truck's brakes go out, and he blasts through several detour and road-closed signs on the way to the precipice. Luckily, as with the bus in speed, the front tires are magically lifted just before the edge, and the truck safely clears the gap of the demolished section of freeway. Unfortunately, he still can't stop, and he blasts through the side of the Kramer Motorhome, no doubt killing their children, Yeah. and then plows into the back of the bank robber's VW, causing the front trunk to pop open and all the stolen cash to blow away. The truck rear-ends Dwayne and Carmen, and their new car flips, and then the rhino truck smashes a fruit truck and tosses a bunch of oranges into the open jeep full of gay guys. The rhino truck finally rolls on its side, and we see the Excalibur swerve to avoid it and then launch itself over an embankment, where the call girls are tossed from the vehicle in the crash. This stunt looks pretty dangerous, too, because we see girls just flying off the top of the car as it goes off the edge of the freeway. Like, a whole bunch of this stuff seems pretty awful. I did not like what was happening with Beverly D'Angelo. And, like, Jessica Tandy upside down. Right. That stuff is crazy. I I was very excited, though, for all this. I was like, oh, my God. It's finally happening. (laughs) They're getting Final Destination. (laughs) The back gate of the rhino truck falls open, and a lion is let loose on the freeway. Eddie climbs out of his car in pain, but notices the attractive passenger from the rhino car and offers her a job. The rhino chases the rhino driver down the freeway, and this is where we see him limping between yeah, cars. Yeah, yeah. 
Mr. Kramer films the chase on an 8mm handheld camera from the wreckage of his motorhome. Somehow little Delia Kramer has been launched so high in the air that she's hanging from a streetlight by her suspenders, and her brother Billy is pissing off the side of the freeway. Carmen finds Dwayne scooping up her mother's ashes with credit cards in the road and gives him a peck on the cheek. Spanky the hitchhiker is sitting on the hood of the orphan's charter bus, and they all laugh in the windows behind him. The call girls climb back up to the freeway, and Sister Mary Magdalene falls to her knees to pray for forgiveness. Sister Clarice is snatching cash out of the wind without much success. Osvaldo tries to do the same, but Eugene is stuck in the backseat of the VW because the doors were jammed in the accident. Next, we see Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy in their upside-down car on the side of the road as lions paw at the car doors from either side. I'm surprised the production would let lions so close to Cronin and Tandy because they're yeah. clearly in this car alone. Strapped in. Right. Because they're hanging upside down. With lions right next to them. Ugh. It's crazy. Maybe the shot was upside down. They were fine, but Maybe the lions... Maybe they turned the earth upside down no, and no, glued the, lions to it. The, the lions were being cable suspended upside down, and that's, and that's why they're so that's mad. That's what it is. The rhino continues chasing TJ through traffic, and then suddenly something happens. A huge crowd of tick lions are waving their hands in the air in celebration. Where are they? Not on the freeway. There's buildings in the background. Turns out they're on a beach, and they're excited because Mayor Kalo has finally pulled off the water skiing elephant stunt. Not only is the elephant staying above water this time, but the mayor is riding on its back, waving a tickle flag as the camera floats away from the scene into the sky and the credits roll. Okay, so this this was real, right? Yeah. Yes, this is a man on an elephant on water skis being pulled by a boat, which yeah. I assume it's not water skis. I assume it's actually a raft. Well, it's yeah, because you can see in an earlier version of the elephant getting on the water skis that they're tied together. So they're... They're connected. They're connected in between. So it is and more, more like a pontoon than water skis. And probably a fully supported pontoon that's like propelling itself through the water behind the boat, I would imagine. I or do don't you think, think it's just so. I, th I think it's just a buoyant sort of pontoon thing that it's sitting on that's being pulled by the boat. I'm also guessing this is a young elephant right, that is yeah. heavily sedated. Maybe. Because, I mean, sedated just enough that it wouldn't fall asleep while they're moving it. I because guess. This it, is it's just not horrifying that this is out. actually a thing. Yeah, because it, it's not like its feet are buckled in in no. any way. So it could step out of these water skis. And if it decided to go nuts at any point, it would just fall off into hundreds of feet deep water. Which I guess elephants can probably swim. I can't, they, they can, can they swim? Yeah, yeah. they can swim. Because like, hippos can't swim. I've definitely seen footage of elephants. Yeah, Hippos can swim. No, hippos cannot swim. Hippos just bounce off the bottoms. Yeah. They can't swim. Yeah, but they can bounce off the bottoms. But elephants, elephants definitely swim. Um, I referenced the film The Fall. Oh, where they touche. There you go. Yeah, but still, it still bothers me. I don't like it. It's pretty crazy. I mean, uh, kudos to them for pulling it off. I'm glad that if one of the animals had to die, that it was the rhino that died from just exposure to cold and not this elephant from drowning, because that seems like that would be that much more terrifying to to be a part of if you drowned an elephant than if you're like oh rhino died and maybe we didn't do that because it happened a day later right they probably did it though all right so what are we thinking guys thumbs up or thumbs down on this one it's a big thumbs down for me it was really disappointing i i mean there's a lot of things that it's not it's not good did you laugh once in the whole movie i feel like i i might have chuckled a few times i i literally the only time i laughed out loud was when Daniel Stern almost broke after he spit on Beverly D'Angelo 
and when Jerry Harden curses at the assistant. That Those are the only two moments that I laughed at in the whole movie. Everything else was just like frustrating. Like why? Like this is this is what happens when someone who isn't funny writes a comedy. I I wasn't. Th- this movie was not infuriating to me the way a lot of movies, you know, that that I think are are probably in this vein are. It was definitely a lot less of that for me because I feel like although it wasn't, most of the scenes weren't progressing the plot. They weren't necessarily like bad but like for example the the scene where she goes for a dip in the pool what is the point of that no and i'm telling you just because they're not but there was nothing wrong with that scene no there's nothing wrong with it it just brings the whole movie to a screeching halt for like a five minute scene of this woman swimming i I get it which is yeah i get i get that that's frustrating for you but i'm just saying like it wasn't it wasn't as frustrating for me because there's nothing that that scene where she sneaks out and goes swimming like in any other movie, it'd be like, yeah, that was a nice scene. Like, that's fine. I don't know. It, it just rubbed me the wrong way. Scenes like that or when the bank robbers go to a department store to get clothes so that they can go pay for blowjobs later. Like, they need fancy clothes to go to the whorehouse in. They went to a department store and just harassed employees and are overly concerned about what they're wearing. I just, I didn't understand it. It, it plays into nothing that they're robbers for most of the movie, except that they have money at the end. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to defend the movie too hard here. I'm just like, yeah. it, I don't think it's as obnoxious as a lot of th- these kinds of movies. No, I mean, we've seen worse for sure. But it just, uh, it aggravated me that I was expected to find some of these things funny because yeah. I so didn't. Well, well, it feels to me, this is a thumbs down for me. Uh, it feels to me what this movie wanted to be is a kind of mad, 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 mad world. Right. We got we got all these kind of like But they're all B listers. Well like, I, I mean Beverly D'Angelo's Yeah, I would big. say D'Angelo and, and Tandy and Cronin are probably They are. Known. That's true. Yeah. Those uh, are the biggest names I would say. But it, it seems like they're what they're trying to do is like we're gonna have all these different little side stories, uh all these a whole bunch of kooky characters that are gonna, you know, have this big huge finish. But there is no big huge finish. I mean the car crash is supposed to be the big huge finish. Yeah. It, but none of the characters are are trying to do anything. Like in Mad 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 World, they all have a goal uh, that's related to each other. And right. even in Rat Race, like I mean, obviously this movie is way before Rat Race, but but all the characters have a, a goal. Right. Th- these characters aren't doing anything really. We no, they're all getting detoured to this small town for yeah. one night. They're not even spending any money there. Yeah, they 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 all are trying to get to Florida for different reasons. For different reasons. Uh, and uh, for we never so- see them get to Florida, even. Well, I, I mean, I they guess get to Tickle the Law, state, they get, yeah, but they, they don't to get Law. to Miami, which is where they're all headed. Yeah. Uh, but but for like, wh- why was Dwayne going there? Dwayne was going there because he saw a billboard. I guess he was going there because his wife cooked his story that he wrote, right? And he wants to stick it to her by just screwing the first random girl that talks to him at a diner. And, and why were the bank robbers going to Florida? Because it's nice this time of year. Yeah, it, it's it, it just had a lot of like things in it. It's like I, I it's, did we explain why Cronin and Tandy are going to? I, I think they, yeah, they were they were going for a vacation. That's like, it. Like yeah, vacation. it was it was just this, you know, the same as the Kramers. It's just vague vacation reasons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, at least the, the Kramers were cross country. 
Like they were going across the country. Yeah. Like, okay, they're going across the country. That's, right. that's, that's, that's at least something I can understand. Yeah. Again, I referenced rat race where with, uh, John Lovitz, John oh, Lovitz's yeah. family is doing that. Sure. Yeah. They're going across the country. Are they the, the team that end up in the, in the Hitler mobile? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you stole Hitler's car. He had it coming. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. And so th- that was, I feel like this movie should have either stayed with the town the whole time. Like the whole movie should have been them coming up with crazy schemes to get people to, mm-hmm. to yeah. get all, get to get their town put on the map. Yeah. Uh, is, like a mouse that roared. Billed as. Yeah. Like I feel like that's what the, the synopsis is, which is really not the vast majority of the film is watching these other stories. Yeah. Right. And the fact that we're so foggy on whether the mayor was doing this on purpose to emulate a hostage situation means that he's like a little bit darker than I, than I expected for that character. Mm-hmm. So now there's nobody who's like the pure character who's trying to do things for a good reason. Everybody's awful for a different reason. Yep. And when that happens, I tend not to care what happens to any of them. And, and there's no follow through on any one storyline. Right. Yeah. Like we, Dwayne never gets a publisher for his book. And he never sees his children again. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica Tandy never solves her, her drinking problem. We never see the ashes scattered. I thought they, she was going to scatter the ashes in Tickclaw. Like, like, I mean, she did. Yeah, that's true. But then they unscattered them. Um, I guess Sister Mary is the only one who has kind of a through line. Yeah. She, she becomes a prostitute. So, does she, know, though? She because she, comes, she becomes a nun again because she oh. thinks yeah. that the yeah, day that she turned punished. on. Yeah. Right. Maybe. Even though her namesake was a prostitute, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A reformed prostitute. So. Okay. So she is supposed to reform. There you go. But yeah, but that's it. I mean, I don't like it. In that case, then shouldn't the Eddie character have looked more like Jesus? Wouldn't that have made more sense? Sure. Like that's how he wins these people over. It's almost like a cult. Richard, where do you have this one on your letterbox list? Uh, I have it at 85, which puts it below high risk, but above Harry's war. Okay. So that's 85 out of 112. Yeah. I have it in 103rd uh, out of 112. That's just under an eye for an eye, but just above hard country. Okay, so I have it at 86. It's uh, just under Under the Rainbow and above the Four Seasons. All right. Our director here was John Schlesinger. Before this, he directed Midnight Cowboy, for which he took home the Best Director Oscar. (laughs) He also directed (laughs) Sunday Bloody Sunday, Day of the Locust, and Marathon Man, all of which I love. After this, he helms The Falcon and the Snowman, but his career never fully recovered from the flopping of this film. I think that maybe you're more angry because of that. Those other movies? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I didn't I have I that. didn't have those expectations in my head when I watched this. Yeah. The writer here was Edward Clinton, who his other work is, he wrote four episodes of soap opera Another World, and that's it. This and that. Wow. The music came from Elmer Bernstein. He has 13 Oscar noms and one win for Thoroughly Modern Millie. He scored Meatballs, The Great Santini, and then from what we've covered, Saturn Three, Airplane, Going Ape, Stripes, Heavy Metal, and An American Werewolf in London before this. He's famously back for Ghostbusters in just a few years. Another music credit here for George Martin. He has a composer credit on Live and Let Die, probably as a result of many producing credits throughout the Beatles discography. Honky Tonk Freeway was his final score. 
Cinematographer John Bailey previously lit American Gigolo and Ordinary People for the podcast, back this season for Continental Divide and later Cat People, The Big Chill, Silverado, Groundhog Day, and In the Line of Fire. Editor Jim Clark previously cut Darling, Day of the Locust, and Marathon Man for director Schlesinger. Later he cuts The Killing Fields, Nell, The World is Not Enough, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and Happy Go Lucky. He also has several directing credits, including 1972's Rent-A-Dick, written by Monty Pythoners, Graham Chapman and John Cleese under the pseudonyms Jim Viles and Kurt Loggerhead. <laughs> I have to assume that it's not to their liking if they used pseudonyms. All right, into the cast now. I apologize because there are 103 speaking parts in the film. And this is, th- I, th- I feel like this is especially notable because, you know, I don't feel like I'm that great at knowing people in movies i mean maybe better than average but nowhere near you know you guys and i recognized most the people in this movie every single face is a face that you know i'm just like man i probably can't name a whole bunch of things that they're in but like they're in a bunch of things yeah and i don't i i really wonder if like if the casting director is just really that great to pick all these people that went on to have great careers or if they already were established and they just managed to get a pretty big uh, cast of, of, of known people. Yeah. And maybe there was just a lot of people in Florida and they were like, oh, you know, this person's in town. Let's get them to come down. David Rashi played Eddie White, the pimp. He was a stopwatch producer in our first film. Just tell me what you want. He was Sledgehammer on Sledgehammer, Bernard on Board to Death, Jim Marwood in Veep, and he's currently Carl Muller on Succession. It's Carl. Yeah. Also, this character comes in way late. Yeah, he does. I, I feel like it's like an hour into the movie. He's one of the last stories yeah. that gets introduced. And he's first credited. Yeah, that is really weird because it's not, yeah, if it's not in order of appearance and it's not alphabetical, I don't know how they decided to put him first. Right. Paul Jabara was TJ Tupas. He's credited as The Party in Midnight Cowboy and a nightclub entertainer in The Day of the Locust. Howard Hessman played Snapper. Apparently, that's the name of the father of the Kramer family, Snapper yep. Kramer. He played Johnny Fever on WKRP in Cincinnati. He's Pete Lassard in Police Academy 2. We've seen him so far in Loose Shoes and Private Lessons, but I usually think of Dr. Faraday in Flight of the Navigator. Do you guys recall the last time we had a Dr. Faraday? You've asked me this question before. No, I mentioned Faraday in our Heavy Metal episode as the author of the book from the Den story, and that I thought it was a reference to the famous professor but uh i believe if i'm not mistaken that we've had a character named dr faraday i'm going to confirm it right now was it an actual doctor he was a psychiatrist Psychiatrist. if my recollection is correct and it is uh i'm gonna go with the nesting he was played by glenn ford if that helps i'm gonna go with the in a Canadian horror film with a psychiatrist character. Yeah, what was the one with all the phobias? Phobia? Not, not phobia. <laughs> no, it's not the, not the Starsky psychologist. It's uh, it's Happy Birthday to Me, uh, the uh, psychologist that she's like flirting with the whole time. Okay, yeah, that weird relationship. That was Glenn Ford as Dr. David Faraday. Terry Garr played Erica of the Kramer family, Erica Kramer. Before this, she was in Head, The Conversation, Young Frankenstein, Oh God, and Close Encounters. We've seen her in Witch's Brew as she shows up in Tootsie and After Hours. More recently, she's appeared in Dumb and Dumber, Dick, and Ghost World. 
Not super recently, but <laughs> more recently than the other things I said. Jen Thompson played Delia. She was Penelope in Little Darlings and Lisa Tobin in the Out of Towners remake. Peter Billingsley played Little Billy. This is the first of three Billies Billingsley has played, followed by Billies in Death Valley in 82 and Sherman Oaks in 95. Apparently there is a movie called Sherman Oaks. <laughs> He's probably best known for his appearance in A Christmas Story or Elf possibly also he's in a couple christmas movies later this season he's back for paternity so he was in two movies that were nominated for razzie's for worst original song this year he was a classmate of john favreau's which landed him roles in elf and iron man and his iron man character just returned for spider-man far from home uh very recently <laughs> that's the full spider-man movie back well that's funny i kind of was i didn't realize that there was like a connection to john favreau i would have yeah. just assumed that you're like if you have a Christmas movie, why would you not put him right. in it? Yeah, no, yeah. that too, I think. There was definitely some Christmas cheer coming along with this character. He's currently appearing in a Christmas Story sequel called A Christmas Story Christmas, which actually reunites several members of the original cast, including Zach Ward and Scott Schwartz is coming back. Bo Bridges played Dwayne Hanson. He is the son of Lloyd, brother of Jeff, and father of Dylan. Uh, I don't know if people know Dylan Nobody that well. <laughs> he didn't act in, in anything that I know of. Maybe a few things. But uh, but we know him because we went to school with him. Right. I had basically every class with him freshman year in college. Before this, Bo was in Two Minute Warning, Greased Lightning, Norma Ray. After this, he was in The Fabulous Baker Boys, The Wizard, Jerry Maguire, Rocket Man, and Max Payne. It's funny. <laughs> it, it, Thank you. Jesse's first credit. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned Two Minute Warning because that's what this movie reminded me of as oh, well. Oh, really? Yeah. Because Two Minute Warning is about uh, a shooter, active shooter at a football game. And there's also a person who wants to go to the Super Bowl. There's yeah. a bunch of things in common. But but it, it's all these different side stories and you're wondering why you why are we following all these random people going to a football yeah. game, but it's all ends up all being people that the shooter targets. Mm. Like, oh, okay. Because he's randomly shooting. But right. it's not random to us anymore because we've met all these people and right. spent the day with them. Yeah. And so it's all more like heart pulling. Yeah. More recently, Bo was the vice president and eventual president, Ralph Warner, on Homeland. Beverly D'Angelo played Carmen Odessa Shelby. She's best known as Ellen Griswold in the Vacation series. Before this, she was in Annie Hall, Every Which Way But Loose, and Hair. We've seen her so far as Patsy Cline and Coal Miner's Daughter. And we mentioned in that episode that she also voiced Lurleen Lumpkin for the Simpsons Coal Miner's Daughter parody episode. Daniel Stern played the hitchhiker, Spanky. He's just credited as hitchhiker. Before this, he was in Breaking Away and Starting Over. We saw him last season in Small Circle of Friends, Stardust Memories, and One Trick Pony. Earlier this season, he was Jill Clayburgh's shitty student Cooperman in It's My Turn. Later, he's in Diner, Chud, Frankenweenie, Little Monsters, and probably most famously, the Home Alones and the Wonder Years. He voiced Dilbert on the Dilbert animated series. He was in the City Slickers movies, and more recently he played Bill on Allie Rushfield's Shrill with A.D. Bryant, another co-worker of yours, Allie Rushfield. Mm -hmm. Celia Weston played Grace. This was her first feature. Later she is Ben Stiller's mom in David O. Russell's Flirting with Disaster. She's also Mrs. Krenslet in Hulk and Seth Rogen's mom in Observe and Report. Deborah Rush played Sister Mary Magdalene. This was an early role from her, but the part I recognized most was as Jerry Blank's mother, Sarah Blank, on Strangest with Candy. She was also Carol Chapman on Orange is the New Black. Geraldine Page played Sister Mary Clarice. This is the part originally awarded to Kay Medford before her untimely passing. 
Geraldine Page has a Best Actress Oscar for The Trip to Bountiful and seven previous acting nominations for In Order, Hondo in 54, Summer in Smoke in 62, Sweet Bird of Youth in 63, You're a Big Boy Now in 67, Pete and Tilly in 73, Interiors in 79, and The Pope of Greenwich Village in 85. We saw her last as the late great Aunt Beverly in Harry's War, and she's back next season with Daniel Stern again in I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can. George DeZunza played Eugene. He's probably best known for his appearances on Law & Order. Before this, he was John in Deer Hunter. He was briefly cast as the lead in Christmas Evil last season, but was fired when he tried to make significant changes to the script against the filmmaker's wishes. He later shows up in Basic Instinct, Crimson Tide, Dangerous Minds. He also does a lot of animated voices, including Arnold Wesker and the Ventriloquist on Batman the Animated Series, and Perry White on Superman the Animated Series. Joe Graffisi played Osvaldo. He was Matty Stanick in Hide in Plain Sight last season. He's back in Splash, Brewster's Millions, Moonstruck, Hudsucker Proxy as Lou, and Deputy Hamulka in Natural Born Killers. Hume Cronin played Sherm. He's also in Brewster's Millions as Rupert Horn. He appears in Cocoon, Cocoon 2, Batteries Not Included, and The World According to Garp, all of which also feature his wife Jessica Tandy, who plays his wife here. Jessica Tandy played Carol. She's also in Driving Miss Daisy, for which she won her Oscar, and she's Ninny Threadgood in Fried Green Tomatoes. Such a good role. Frances Lee McCain played Claire Kahlo, that's the mayor's wife. She's Stella Baines, Marty McFly's maternal grandmother in Back to the Future. She's Will Wheaton's mom in Stand By Me, Billy Peltzer's mom in Gremlins, and Dewey and Tatum's mom in Scream. She's also in Footloose and Patch Adams. William Devane played Mayor Kirby T. Kahlo. This is William Devane's third consecutive collaboration with Schlesinger after Marathon Man in 76 and Yanks in 79. Apparently, Paul Newman and Walter Matthau were considered for this part, but let's face it, that was never going to happen. Yeah. His father, Joseph Devane, was FDR's chauffeur. He's Janeway in Marathon Man, Dr. Kramer in Hollow Man, SecDef and eventual president James Heller on 24, NASA admin Williams in Interstellar, and Rob Lowe's father on The Grinder. Which was actually a funny show. It's a shame that it got that title because that got the show canceled right away. Uh, I like him in uh, the movie Payback with Mel Gibson. Oh, okay. He's one of the one of the three major figureheads that yeah. he has to see in order to get his money. He's <laughs> the first one. He's also currently Whitney Vance on Bosch Legacy. Ron Fraser played Kirk. He's Steven in The World According to Garp and Burl Willits in Brubaker last season. He's back later this season as Gil Hovey in Rollover. Jerry Hardin played the governor. Before this, he was Mr. Patterson in Chilly Scenes of Winter and Map Man in 1941. He's back later this season in Reds and next season in the unrelated Honky Tonk Man. He's Mason in Cujo, Tony Owens in The Falcon and the Snowman, also from Schlesinger, and Emerson Capps in The Malagro Beanfield War. He played Mark Twain in a two-part Star Trek TNG, but he is likely best known for the role of Deep Throat on the X-Files, and my first thought will always be of the attorney at the start of Big Trouble in Little China, who's lecturing Egg Shen on all the damage Jack Burton did to the city in the process of saving the planet. Now, if you're protecting Jack you Burton... You leave Jack Burton alone! Uh, interesting side note, his role on TNG as Mark Twain yeah. landed him uh, requests for him to portray Mark Twain at other locations oh interesting like the they just were, thought he was a mark twain impersonator yeah he like, did so good yeah he, he, he did really well if you could continue to do this that's awesome john ashton played otto kemper he was charles monroe in borderline last season he's also sergeant taggart 
in the Beverly Hills Cop films and Marvin Dorfler in Midnight Run. That's the guy who says, Piddly ass town! Yeah. John C. Becher, or Becker, played Brandon C. Dasher. He was Dr. Molinaro in Gremlins. Loretta Tupper played Miss Barbudi. She was Grandma in Home Movies and Elderly Lady in Midnight Madness last season. Frances Bay played Mrs. Lewinowski. She shows up in a minisode for The Attic later this season. She's also Miss DeLillo in Chilly Scenes of Winter, and she was Mrs. Lindley in Amy earlier this season. She's Mrs. Haynes in Big Top Peewee, Evelyn Metcalf in Arachnophobia, Mrs. Pickman in In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah. But she's probably best known for her appearance as Happy Gilmore's grandmother. Is the character in... Uh, is Mrs. Pickman the one who's like kicking her husband on the floor? Yeah, he's got she's chained up on the behind the counter. Yeah, that's so great. She's so creepy too. She's wonderful. Roland Moriyama played Mister Naguki. He was Mister Shimura in the Hindenburg, and this was his final credit. Kimiko Hiroshige played Mrs. Naguki. She's credited as Cambodian lady in Blade Runner, and she's a banquet guest in Fletch. Jason D. Keller played Denny Hansen. That's probably one of the kids. Um, having breakfast he is now a producer uh of television he worked as a producer on joey the richie rich netflix series and most recently drunk history his brother shane keller plays his brother in the film jim hansen he's now also a producer they're probably the children of producers but i couldn't find any relatives with the last name but uh he's a producer on big love you're the worst and cobra kai and they are actually identical twins i didn't realize that in the scene but the two brothers the Mm. bow bridges kids are, are identical twins Kelly Lang plays herself. She also plays herself in Spy Hard. She was a weather woman turned anchor woman and regular co-host of the Tournament of Roses Parade. In the late 80s, she was briefly married to Exorcist and Cruising director William Friedkin. Kent Williams played Kelly's guest. He was Cabot in War Games. We saw him previously as Ogden in Heartbeat last season. He was also Clinton Ferris in MacGyver episode Off the Wall. He's the guy who was married and divorced from multiple MacGyver love interests played by Robbins specifically robin curtis and robin pearson rose oh yeah arnold johnson played bank bum he's cull and shaft from our patreon episode last year he's carl winslow's stepdad fletcher thomas in four episodes of family matters and he was putney swope in robert downey senior's putney swope we've seen him previously in our on the nickel minisode nancy parsons played alice the teller she's ball bricker in porky's next season we've seen her so far as a nurse in where the buffalo roam and as ida smith in motel hell what a day for tubin <laughs> jessica Raines played mary the taylor she's helen in oh god book two and then ken lerner plays the dude teller he's the third of the three bank tellers the one that won't cash the woman's check there's actually three tellers in the scene with worthwhile credits but for whatever reason ken lerner playing the third teller goes uncredited Entirely possible it was his choice, but it's not even listed uncredited on his IMDb. We saw Mr. Lerner last as Tony Jr. in Any Which Way You Can, but he's probably best known as Principal Flutie from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or as Lou Schwartz on The Goldbergs. I could not figure out the actor's name on my own, but I had some help on Twitter. At first I was thinking Fred Stoller and someone guessed Larry Hankin, both of whom are close, but it's for sure Ken Lerner. So the credit for identification goes to at Motorhead711. Nice work on that one. I was not going to get it on my own. But we mentioned in our Any Which Way You Can review that Ken Lerner is actually the younger brother of Michael Lerner. Right. 
Anne Risley played the actress at the bank. She was Pam and Simon and a UFO follower in Stardust Memories last season. She was also a cast member of SNL at the time for the 80 to 81 season. That was the first season that Lorne Michaels had left the show before he came back. Helen Hanft played the bag lady. She's a party guest in Manhattan and Miss Helberg in License to Drive. She was Perry's wife in Arthur earlier this season, and she was also in Willie and Phil and Stardust Memories last season. Um, but she just is a bag lady for five seconds, and yep. then they drop her character and she's gone. Robert Stoneman played Jeep Guy. He was a bartender in nearly 50 episodes of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Randy Norton played another Jeep Guy. He was a student tony in butcher baker nightmare maker later this season murphy dunn played one of the car thieves he's murph the keyboardist in the blues brothers and he's also dr shallert in last married couple in america and he's back later this season as a singing telegram man in paternity so he too along with peter billingsley appears in two films that were nominated for worst original song at the razzies leo burmester played mortuary director he's credited as water sport in cruising He's Catfish DeVry in The Abyss. He's Colonel Beauregard in 2005's Legend of Zorro. Jeffrey Combs played the drive-in teller. Fucking Jeffrey Combs. I didn't even recognize him. <laughs> this is his first film ever, but he's back later this season in Whose Life Is It Anyway? Later, he's in The Man With Two Brains, From Beyond, and Cyclone. He's likely best known for his Lovecraftian roles as Dr. Herbert West in Reanimator and Bride of Reanimator. Jack Murdoch played the Rhino Wrangler. He was John Mooney in Rain Man and Hector Ortego in Altered States. He was also the concession owner in Cutter's Way and Little Melvin in Any Which Way You Can last season. He's also in the same Star Trek Next Generation episode as Jerry Harden. Oh, is he really? <laughs> yeah. He's in the Mark Twain episodes. Jack Thebeau played Conventioneer. Before this, he was in Apocalypse Now, Escape from Alcatraz in 1941. We've seen him in Any Which Way You Can and Miss 45. And he's McCaskey in Lethal Weapon, Trooper Prestone in The Hitcher, and Detective Cotterwell in Action Jackson. Richard Christie played Auto Mechanic. He was Ted Lawson on Small Wonder, who built Vicky the Robot in the first place. He's also the father in Looker later this season. Anita Dangler played Sales Lady. She's Mrs. Havacek in Hero at Large, and a bag lady in The Fisher King. Gloria Leroy played Fish Restaurant Waitress. She was Grandma Moses in Barfly, and Grandma in Sid and Nancy. She's back later this season as a prostitute in Pennies from Heaven. Harvey Lewis played Keel in Raise the Titanic and a process server in How to Beat the High Cost of Living. Joe Ann Deering played soap opera actress uncredited. She was Susan in Chud 2, Bud the Chud, and a soap opera woman in Cat People. Lois Hamilton, uncredited, played Seymour's girl in Cannonball Run and Stillman's girlfriend in Stripes. So she played two characters that were referred to by the girlfriend of another character so far this year bob minor played the bus driver uncredited he was jackson in commando and duty sergeant in escape from new york ann ramsey played the tv chef uncredited so on top of not giving her anything to do they didn't even put her name in the credits yeah but we've seen her so far in the black marble and any which way you can she's mama fratelli in the goonies mama and throw mama from the train and the woman in the shelter in scrooged which is probably my favorite role from her. Yeah, her and her husband right there together. And those are all the credits I had for this one. 
I think that's everything for Honky Tonk Freeway. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Prince of the City, which IMDb describes like so. A New York City narcotics detective reluctantly agrees to cooperate with a special commission investigating police corruption and soon realizes he's in over his head and nobody can be trusted. We leave you now with the trailer for Prince of the City. It's you guys starting with assistant DAs who run the whole thing while we're up in El Barrio on 125th Street. Well, you just have to hurt us. You want to lay the whole system on us, but nobody cares about me but my partner. It's me and him and whatever guy we catch, and we're gonna put him in jail, and we're gonna take his money. I know what you guys think of us, but we're the only thing between you and the jungle. His name is Detective Danny Cello. We make cases, there'll be big ones. You'll be the state star witness. He sees life as we will never see it. If I decide to do this thing, I will not give up my partners. He is Prince of the City. Detective Daniel Cello, Special Investigating Unit, Narcotics Division, Your Honor. Is it common practice to sell narcotics in the Narcotics Division? We're not dope dealers, we're policemen. He's seen too much. Was Moscone a partner? He's a friend. He's federal level. I want him. He knows too much. Your people are out to get you worse than anybody on our side. He said too much. In their hearts, they want to admit their guilt. That's the way cops are. That's how you got here. He's gone too far to stop. Wait a minute, I'm a cop! Come on up! Look at him! Treat Williams is Prince of the City. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. The Projection Booth is single-handedly the greatest film podcast you could ever listen to or could possibly want. Top-notch. Five stars. This has quickly become one of my favorite film-related podcasts. Always interesting. A completely unpretentious yet fully comprehensive look at films from all genres. This podcast is an amazing resource and one that helps in the discovery or rediscovery of films for anyone who enjoys thinking about cinema. If you love movies and podcasts, subscribe and enjoy The Projection Booth. Every episode is beautifully crafted to give you a true audio experience, a wonderful companion to the films they cover. The Projection Booth is awesome. A wide range of films covered from classic to cult to contemporary, thoroughly researched, very entertaining, and always informative. The amount of work and effort that goes into this podcast is something to behold. Interviews, critiques, music, and trailers. These are just the tip of the encyclopedic completeness each episode holds. It's also really fun. I listen to a lot of movie podcasts, and there are a lot of really good ones out there. But The Projection Booth is by far the only one I listen to with any regularity. It's like a special features disc of your favorite Criterion Collection release. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. 